everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. You're listening to Afropunk Solution Sessions. I'm your host, Bridget Todd. And I'm your co-host, Eve Jeffcoat. Afropunk is a safe place, a blank space to freak out in, to construct a new reality, to live our lives as we see fit while making sense of the world around us. Here at Afropunk, we have the conversations that matter to us. Conversations that lead to solutions. The Georgia governor's race is an important one, and Stacey Abrams is on fire. If she wins, Abrams would go on to be the first Black female governor in America. As of today, less than one week before this hotly contested election, Republican Brian Kemp has narrowly led Abrams in most recent polls of likely voters. But a new survey from Opinion Savvy found Abrams with a slight edge, 48% to 47%. So just who is Brian Kemp, Abrams' Republican opponent? Well, for one thing, he has a troubling history of racist antics in the state. And if you spent any time at all watching television in Georgia, you probably remember his ads. I own guns that no one's taken away. And don't forget this gem. I got a big truck. Just in case I need to round up criminal illegals and take them home myself. Yeah, I just said that. But beyond that, as Secretary of State, Kemp has architected voting policies that keep voters, mostly Black voters, from the polls. As Rolling Stone points out, Abrams is competing against a rival who is also her referee. What does that mean? Well, it's called exact match, and here's how it works. According to the Associated Press, Kemp's office currently has 53,000 voter registrations on hold under the state's exact match policy, which he himself helped push through the legislature in 2017. Okay, so let's say that you're in Georgia and you want to go vote. Your voter registration has your name as Bridget Todd, rather than Bridget Marie Todd, as it reads in the Social Security Administration database. Now, that tiny mistake would mean that your registration will be put on hold. And it can be something as small as a missing punctuation mark in your name. And while Georgia's population is only 32% Black, of the 53,000 voter registrations placed on hold, 
70% belong to Black voters. Pretty suspect, right? Kemp was even caught on tape complaining about Stacey Abrams' voter outreach work, saying her push to get folks to the poll, quote, continues to concern us, especially if everybody exercises their right to vote. So when Brian Kemp says everybody, who do you think he means? Now compare his record to Abrams. As minority leader in the Georgia House of Representatives, she's been working to protect voters and make it easier for everybody to vote. Let's say that you're working a tough double shift down at your job. Well, Abrams worked to offer alternative voting days and early voting to help you get to the polls easier. And in 2013, she also founded a nonpartisan nonprofit, the New Georgia Project, which has registered over 250,000 Georgians, mostly unmarried women, young people, and people of color. Listen, no conversation urging us to vote is complete without also talking about the reality of those forces that make it difficult for us to do so, which Abrams has been talking about her entire career. Need to make sure you're registered? Check out vote.org. That's V-O-T-E.org. The Afropunk team will be joining Abrams on the ground in Georgia in the days leading up to the election. And full disclosure, I'm campaigning for her myself on my own. For more on Abrams, her plan for Georgia, and why she's in this race, here's our extended interview with her. Let's start with talking about how your, up, well, your upbringing, first of all, um, how you grew up, where you grew up, and how it influenced your role in politics now. Sure. I grew up in southern Mississippi in the city of Gulfport. My mom was a college librarian, and my father was a shipyard worker at Ingle Shipbuilding. The challenge in our family was even though my parents both worked full-time jobs, my mother had a master's degree in library science from the University of Wisconsin, my parents still struggled to make ends meet. We were best classified as working class slash working poor, depending on the year and, and how well their paychecks did. And so we grew up with economic challenges, always thoughtful about and worried about money. But what I remember most about my childhood is not the economic deprivation, but how my parents reacted to it. They had three rules for us. Go to church, go to school, and take care of each other. Uh, They wanted us to go to church because they wanted us to have a moral framework for how we engaged our community, but more than that, they wanted us to understand that our economic situation had nothing to do with our spirit, with who we were and who we could become. They also raised us with a very inclusive sense of our responsibility, that even though we practiced a Christian tradition, there was no space in our faith for discrimination against others. Um, The second job was to go to school. My parents took education very seriously. My mom was one of seven kids and the only one of her siblings to finish high school, uh, let alone go to college and go off to graduate school. My dad is the first man in his family to go to college. And for both of them, education was the root out of the abject poverty they grew up in. And so they were very intentional about all six of their children going to college and finishing high school and going to college. So actually all of us did. Not all of us finished. I have a younger brother who ended up dropping out of college, but every other one of us finished college and most of us went on to graduate work. The third job, though, is the most important. It's the one that links me to public service, and that was my mom and dad said take care of each other. 
for them, that was more than just taking care of my siblings. It was about how do we take care of the world around us, which seemed sometimes a bit strange to us as kids who you know, were worried about whether the lights were cut on or got cut off and whether there was you know, running water in the house. But for my parents, they wanted us to understand that no matter how little we had, there was someone with less, and our job was to serve that person. Watching my parents not only talk about service, but being actively engaged in it as a child and uh, throughout my, my growing up years, I developed a very deep sense of responsibility. And for me, that directly translates to politics. Um, we have a responsibility to eradicate poverty, to create space for people to be successful. And the way we do that requires good leadership, the right leaders who understand the intersection of politics and policy of the public sector writ large, but also the nonprofit sector and the business sector. And because of the way I was brought up, I was raised to integrate all of those pieces of myself, my religious beliefs, my educational beliefs, and my commitment to service. And in the same way, it makes me want to do this job as governor, where I can integrate not only my personal beliefs, but also my skills as a nonprofit leader, as a business leader, and as a political leader. Yeah, and that brings me to the to the point. I know that you, you know, are in politics, but you've had not just like one life, but two lives, three lives with all the things that you've done, like your entrepreneurship um, in business and politics and the Environmental Protection Agency, like just all these various things from one end of the spectrum to the other. And I guess what I'm wondering is like how you would, what you would say to a person who thinks that they maybe don't have the qualifications or don't know exactly what they're looking for when they're looking to get into politics. Like, it doesn't just have to be one thing. It can be more than one thing that you have experience in that can bring you to be sitting at the table. Oh, absolutely. There is no one pathway. In fact, I know that because I've taken most of them. Um, <laughs> I went from... Uh, you know, in college, I actually had to write a paper about what I wanted to know when I graduated because I was so undecided about my major. I majored in physics and philosophy and theater. I did, I briefly flirted with chemistry and history. And finally, the dean said, you've no idea what you want to study. So just write me a paper and tell me what you think you want to know. And I actually ended up graduating from Spelman College with an ended interdisciplinary studies major, which basically meant they let me make it up. Uh, and I studied political science, economics, and sociology. The reason I talk about that, though, is that I became comfortable with not having a direct path to my goals. And that's hard to do. It's hard to know that you don't have to know everything to be successful. And when it comes to running for office, when it comes to serving your community, the most important thing to know is what you want to see changed and how you want to be a part of that change. You don't have to come with every solution, but you have to come with the right questions. And too often, especially communities of color, young people, women, we hold ourselves back until we are perfect. Problems don't wait till you're perfect. Problems need to be solved now. And sometimes the best solutions come from people who aren't so grounded in the minutia of the moment but have the per personal experience, but also have the passion for wanting to see change. 
And so, you know, I've had people who've complimented me on my multiple hats and the, the different things I've done, and I'm privileged and blessed to have had these various opportunities. But I will tell anyone who's thinking about standing for office, if you care about your community, if there is something that drives you, and if you are willing to do the work, then stand up and run, uh, because we need you. Why does representation and diversity matter in government? There are complex challenges facing our communities. Uh, Does that matter where you live? Even in homogenous spaces, there are differences of need. And so within the black community, within the Latino community, within the white community, every community of, of any kind has complexity. But we are a common society where our complexities touch each other. Diversity matters because people need to know what those challenges are. They need to understand at a visceral level the impact of those issues. I spend a lot of time talking about decriminalization of poverty because unless you've been poor, you do not always understand what it means to have your license taken away because you can't pay a a traffic ticket. Because the minute that happens, you can't get to work anymore. And the job you have that's barely helping you make ends meet disappears. If you are a person of color who has experienced discrimination, then you have the ability often to see where discrimination lies and to then counteract it. You need diversity because diversity provides information. It also provides ways to address issues. And that diversity in and of itself creates a richer and fuller response in politics. We have seen what happens when you have a homogeneous set of people making decisions. Too many people are left out of those choices. Too many people are impacted negatively by the decisions that are made. And it isn't until we add new voices, add new people of color, add women, add differences based on sexual orientation that we then become aware of the impediments and the prejudices that exist in our communities and our, in our policies. And so I, I see diversity as the only way to get to good answers uh, because otherwise you're trying to solve a problem without full information. And that's both intellectually void, but it also is immoral because you are not serving everyone, and that is the responsibility of good government. Let's take a quick break. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year 
at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values, premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. And we're back. Constantly facing opposition is like part and parcel of everything you do from all those different angles. And I know that there have been probably been a lot of people saying that what you're doing is ambitious or doubting your viability um, despite, you know, (laughs) everything that you've done. Um, I'm wondering how do you um, do you have a little voice in your head of like self-doubt or has there ever been that before saying something saying that this never has been done before? Um, And if so, how do you overcome that um, that feeling if you do have that? I actually have a book that I just finished writing. It comes out in April from Henry Holt. It's called Minority Leader, How to Lead from the Outside and Create Real Change. And the first two chapters are Dare to Want More. It's about ambition. And the second chapter is about fear and otherness. And so I I smile at the question because those are the roots for me of, of how I navigate One is that you have to be ambitious. We have to want more, uh, especially those of us who come from communities where we are not expected to have more. That necessity of ambition is how we move beyond the lowered expectations of our communities. But it's also how we achieve the great things that our, our society needs. But you cannot tell someone to be ambitious, especially someone who comes from a minority community, without also acknowledging that there are real fears. There are fears of failure, 
uh, but there's also fear of not not just failing, but when we fail, we are often seen as representations of everybody. So it's not just Stacy didn't do something; it's black people didn't do something. Um, you know, that is a question that is always with me. How am I not only speaking for myself, but as a representation of all of the different communities that are contained within who I am? But the goal is to not let fear hold me back. It is to let it inform me. Because if you acknowledge what you're afraid of, if you acknowledge the legitimacy of those fears, then you can parse out which ones are illegitimate, which ones are just noise. And when you can push aside the noise, then you can focus on, okay, how do I then overcome the fear that I have? In this election, viability is a question that is raised because people have not seen it done before. I then have to take their questions and find answers. And so I am running a campaign that looks very different than any statewide campaign that we can find. I am investing heavily in field, meaning that we are talking to voters on the ground, and we are doing so at a depth and at a rate that is unprecedented in Georgia. I'm afraid sometimes that maybe we're doing too much, but then my response is, why am I afraid? I'm afraid because I haven't seen it done, and that's never a reason not to try. And what I want people to know about me, about my campaign, about my ambition, is that my ambition is to do big things. I want to make sure that we have bold and ambitious children who are educated. I want to eradicate poverty. I want to make certain that people feel included in their communities and that they have every right to be successful and not just to survive. Those are ambitious goals. My responsibility as a leader and as a candidate is to let fear be a motivational tool, not let it be something that anchors me and drags me backwards. Yeah. Also along that point, are there any specific things that you do to quell that fear? Maybe like writing a list, um, writing things down, or I don't know, saying certain things to yourself, just something, you know, maybe to give people an actual practice is there anything like that that you have? Absolutely. When it comes to addressing fear, what I encourage people to do is write those fears down. What are you afraid of? Uh, because one of the ways fears is so insidious is that it never takes real form. It just lurks in the back of our minds, and it's a shadow over what we do. Confronting fear requires that we acknowledge what we're afraid of. Are we afraid of winning? Are we afraid of losing? Am I afraid of how I'm perceived? Write down what that fear is, and then once you've written it down, actually make yourself think through where the fear comes from, what's driving it, and then what's the consequence? If if the fear is correct, what's the worst thing that can happen? Because sometimes fear is is powerful because we never actually take it to its fullest extent, and we don't acknowledge that at the end, if what we're worried about is being embarrassed, you can survive embarrassment. If it's that you lose your job, that's something slightly more you know, problematic, but then does it mean that that opens opportunities for new things? So confrontation of fear is critical. But the same thing is true of ambition because ambition is scary. Ambition is hard. And so I also encourage people to write those things down. Uh, I 
have a spreadsheet that I've had since I was in, in college, and it lays out all of the jobs that I want to have. And I wrote it down because some of these are big jobs, and you cannot figure out how to do things if you don't plan for them. And so I write down my ambitions, and then I write down what does it take to get to that job that I want or to achieve this thing I want. I'm a tax attorney, romance novelist, politician, entrepreneur. Each of those things that I've done has required planning. I've recently written my first book that is nonfiction. That required planning. There's no reason for us not to hold ambition, but more importantly, it is exciting to have an ambition that you can then explore. Because one thing you find is sometimes you want a title, but you don't want the job. Or sometimes you want the job, but the title doesn't matter. And until you make yourself sit down and think through those pieces, you don't know what you want for real. And what I encourage people to do is to really give yourself the space to explore who you are and what you want and why you want it. Because that's the last and most important piece. Why you want something usually determines how hard you're willing to work to have it. If you want it because you're annoyed with someone else and you want them to see how good you are, that will get you a little bit. But if you're doing it because you can't imagine doing something else, that's what becomes your driver. That's what makes you committed even when the fears become too large. So if you're elected, you'll be the first, first black female governor in the U.S., um, what does stepping into, like, and facing head-on such a pioneering role feel like? Is it something, I know you've mentioned before when you're first, like you have certain feelings about being the first, but is that is that feeling that's something that's weighty? Like, does it have any challenges that people may not think about? Or is it just a type of thing where it's like, I've prepared for this, you know, um, this is the job that I'm here to do. Look, I, I am honored and I'm humbled to be in the position that I'm in. And I would be extraordinarily proud to become the first you know, black woman governor in the country, to become the first woman governor in Georgia, the first black governor in Georgia. Uh, I grew up in a family that often had wild visions for what we could become. Uh, and who never told us that we could not be. I'm running because I know that I have a clear and bold vision for the future of Georgia, where everyone is welcome, where every family has a chance to succeed. But I'm also doing it because I, I know that I come from a tradition of people helping each other. I talk about that because the weightiness of this moment is not simply about the, the first that I will represent. It's about expanding the sense of what's possible for Georgians. Too many people don't see themselves in, reflected in leadership. They don't see themselves or hear themselves reflected in the conversations around them. And this is not just for Georgia. This is nationally. And because of that, too often we limit what our capacity is. I do not take for granted how important my first will be. But I also understand that that's just part of the story and that my success comes not in becoming the first, but it lies in making certain that others can follow 
and can achieve even more than I do. Speaking of others who follow, what would you say to a child who thinks that they can't be governor because of where they're from? I grew up poor in Mississippi. I'm fairly certain there's a country song or blues song about that. The point of it being there's nothing about where I begin that dictates where I will end up. And that is true for every single person. Now, there are truly systemic challenges that cannot be ignored and should never be made light of. Those systemic challenges come from poverty, from racism, from sexism, from classism, from regionalism. There are always going to be impediments that try to preserve a certain community's access and deny access to others. Our responsibility is to not allow those systems to defeat us. But for a lot of folks, you can't individually buck the system on your own. That's one of the responsibilities I have. It's one of the responsibilities anyone who runs for public office has to not only pave a way for ourselves, but to make sure we pave that way for others to follow. And so what I say to folks is you may not be able to run for governor today, but you can run for city council. You can run for the school board. You can volunteer You can go to your city council meetings. You can go to the state legislature. You can demand action from those who represent you. Find the space where you can put yourself into position and then keep pushing. But also hold those of us who have achieved accountable for helping you get there because this doesn't work if it's only about me. I believe that if you see a challenge, if you see a problem, you have to take action whether we're talking about the extraordinary work done by Black Lives Matter over the last six to seven years, whether we're talking about the work of the Dream Defenders or what's happening right now in Parkland. I'm watching young people, people of color, young black people, young brown people, young people across the country owning their authority and their right to demand better. Being poor is not an excuse for people not to listen to you. Being from a minority community does not give anyone the right to deny you agency. And we have to believe that to our core, and we have to be willing to use our minority positions to fight back and to push for more, because if we don't, we won't get what we deserve. And what we deserve is full access in our communities. What we deserve is to be able to tackle the problems of mental health issues and mass incarceration, to be able to demand better education and stronger opportunities in our jobs. Those are our rights, and where we begin should never tell us that we don't have the ability to achieve those goals. More from Stacey Abrams after this quick break. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge 
indulges your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. And we're back. Let's get right back to Stacey Abrams. It seems like recently so many more people who may not have been interested in running for office before are really inspired to do it because of various reasons. And I'm sure that a lot of people listening to the who will eventually listen to this podcast um, will be some of those people who are thinking about running who have maybe who have various levels of experience. Um, And I think that's something they might want to hear about is mentorship and people who have helped you along the way um what who what have how have people helped you how have you formed relationships with people along the way to help get you um this far so i I would begin by saying that i benefited from working with really smart political leaders early on even though i didn't necessarily think that i was going to be in politics Uh, for me it really began with the conversation of poverty, youth poverty, and civic engagement, I was thinking about myself more as an advocate, not as a politician. But I had the ability to work for Mayor Maynard Jackson uh, back in the early 90s when he was mayor of Atlanta and I was a student at Spelman College. I worked for Shirley Franklin as a volunteer on her campaign when she ran and became the first black woman mayor of Atlanta. Um, I went to the University of Texas. I was in grad school and, and got to work with leaders in Texas who, you know, including very briefly, I got to sit in the classroom with Barbara Jordan. And so one thing I would say is that your mentors can be people that you know, but your mentors sometimes will never meet you. Uh, I read a lot of political biographies because I want to understand the questions that we have to grapple with and how people's minds work as they think through solutions. 
Uh, but there's also a very high utility to practical training. There are groups like Run for Something, Collective Pack, Higher Heights, uh, groups across the country that are helping young people get ready to become politicians, to stand for office. And so look for those groups. Uh, indivisible groups have popped up around the country. Find a local group that you can join because part of the way you learn how to do this is by talking to other folks who do it. I'm a Democrat, so I also encourage you to go to your local Democratic meeting, whether it's your county party or um, a Young Democrats meeting. And I understand that some of the folks listening to this podcast are my age or older. I'm 44. So it's not just young people. It's anyone who for the first time sees an opportunity. And so if you're a woman, Emily's List does extraordinary work as does Higher Heights. If you're a man, there are groups um, that, again, going to your state party, talking to newly developed organizations about running for office. Our responsibility is to find people who share our goals and to get trained to do it. Uh, I I will tell you that there are very few self-made people in any aspect. There are few self-made politicians. Everybody had somebody who helped them. And so you want to either be the person helping or you want to find someone who will help you. And sometimes that just means picking up the phone. Call your state legislator and say, I'd like to come and talk to you, unless it's somebody with whom you vehemently disagree, and then find the person closest to you uh, in your community. So it's a city council member, county commissioner, a judge, but find an elected official and ask to come and meet with them. Do an informational interview. Ask how they got it done. What were their hardships? How did they raise money? Sometimes mentorship is what we have to demand, and it's a moment as opposed to you know, a long process. But whether you get it from books or find it from strangers or get to know political leaders or get trained, build the, the, build the curriculum that you need by touching the people that are within your sight line, and then whatever you can't find, reach out. As you can probably guess, politicians love talking to folks. And so I can rarely imagine someone who shares your political beliefs being unwilling to talk to you. And if they are, then you should probably think about why they're in office. Uh, But find someone who's willing to spend some time with you. I will tell you, I've made it a mission of mine to cultivate young leaders. I I ran a mentorship program, an internship through the caucus. We've had more than 300 graduates through the Georgia House Democratic Caucus internship program as well as creating uh, a group called Blue Institute, which is now being run by my former chief of staff and my former director of caucus services, which are both young people who learned how to be leaders in politics. So I take this very seriously. And, you know, if somebody wants to reach out to me, I'm at Stacy at StacyAbrams.com or just go to our website, StacyAbrams.com. And I'm happy to see what I can do to help. That's awesome. So you said before that, People may not have liked you, but they respected you. I would imagine that that's a pretty hard point to get to, that a lot of people wouldn't like being liked, at least not being liked, at least initially. So how did you get to that point? Um, Is it just through your years of experience, or is there some, like, mental, like, toughening that you did um, to get there? (laughs) Leadership is hard because leadership requires telling people you love no and people you don't like that much, yes. And when people see you do that, 
they get really upset because they either think you're being mean to those who are loyal or that you're being loyal to those who are mean. Leadership makes you have to confront the complexity of issues. And the result of that is often that people take it personally. And I don't disparage that. I, it, I feel that way myself. When I say that sometimes people don't like me, I, you know, I was reelected multiple times, and most of my caucus members like me. But there are those who very clearly do not. I don't internalize that because I know who I am. I know what I've accomplished. And I know how to be critical of myself. I know there are places where I was not as successful as I could have been. There are ways I could have done a better job of communicating. There are times where I could have taken an extra beat to think through what the consequences are for someone else. Not that I would have changed my decision, but I may have changed how I delivered that decision. But the consequence of being able to be a leader is that you do have to be willing not to be liked by everyone. Because often the people who are liked by everyone aren't doing much. I would rather be successful and effective than be beloved. It would be great to do all of the above. But, but leadership is hard. Um, leadership is painful. But it's also critical to understand that as long as you're a good person who is doing things from an authentic space, who is willing to hear feedback and adjust and adapt and get better at what you do, then that's your responsibility. Uh, one of my dearest friends in the legislature uh, is the, the whip of the caucus. Her name was Carolyn Hughley. Uh, Carolyn served with me as whip for the seven years I served as minority leader. She's the number two. And she had this habit of asking me these rhetorical questions to kind of point out to me when I was not being as uh, people-friendly as I needed to be. So she would say, well, Stacy, have you thought about this? And when she said, have I thought about it, the answer was, of course not. And so I just finally used to say to her, just tell me what I did wrong. But what was delightful about working with her was her willingness to help make me better at being accessible. I, I'm, I'm an introvert. I am not highly social. I, I didn't go out a lot and hang out with folks. And that was important to people. People needed to see me in a different context. I didn't understand that at first. And so they imputed from my lack of social activity a lack of concern for their needs. And it wasn't until she helped me see that connection that I understood. It didn't mean that I was going to start going out more, but it did mean that I found other ways to connect with people, other ways for them to see more than the dimension of me that they saw on the floor of the legislature. Toughening sometimes is about toughening yourself and recognizing that you aren't right about how you're doing this, and therefore you're responsible for adapting to the people you want to lead. What, what does a thriving Georgia look like to you? A thriving Georgia is exciting to me. It's a place where if you are a child, zero to three, you are in this high-quality daycare where you are learning every single day and where the children around you are excited and are not bounded by their economic situation. It's a state where if you're in K through 12, you go to school every day excited to learn 
and that you are served by educators who are happy to be there because they are making enough money to take care of their families and they know that when they help a child, they know that child has all of the wraparound services that he or she needs. It's a post-secondary system where anyone who graduates from our high schools knows that they have a pathway to success, either through apprenticeships or through technical college or associate's degrees or to college. It's also one where you have thriving and diverse businesses in every part of the state, where no one has to work more than a single job to make ends meet, and where people are excited about what's happening in their communities, and not just for themselves, but because they see that they are interconnected. And it's one where the state itself is doing its job better, where we have expanded Medicaid so that health care is seen as a right and not a privilege, where rural communities can access the Internet just as easily as someone who lives in the wealthiest part of Atlanta, where mass incarceration is a relic and where anyone who's committed a crime but served their time knows that they are going to be welcomed back into the community and have real opportunities for success. A successful and thriving Georgia has eradicated poverty, has challenged the status quo where it comes to discrimination, and we have embraced the LGBTQ community and the disabled and seniors and where people believe that this is their Georgia. I talk about inclusion a lot uh, because I know that the most successful place is the place where everyone is welcome and everyone can contribute and everyone is served. Those services look different. People need different things. But fundamentally, we will be a state where the leadership respects the diversity of our state, wants everyone to be successful, and is willing to do the hard work to make sure that we all can thrive. Could you give advice to people of color specifically looking to run for office? As a person of color, do not be dissuaded by being the first or being the only. Understand that even if you can't see the people, there are folks around this country who are cheering for you, who share your values and your background and your worries, and we are here to help. Uh, But I also say do it. Stand up and run. Run for office because your voice changes the conversation. Your ability to push for change makes change happen. You may not see it immediately, But every person who stands for office changes the dynamic of an election. And then whoever wins, if it's you who wins, you can do the work. And if you don't win, you then have a platform to use to force the person who was successful to do their work. And then you just wait and run the next time. But the other thing I would say is run for the thing that is closest to your heart, not for the title that's closest to your head. And by that I mean... If what drives you is education, then don't run for the city council. City council doesn't control education. Run for the school board. Uh, If what matters to you is mass incarceration, find out where in your political scheme and the structure of your, your politics people impact that issue and run for that job. I think sometimes we get so excited about the opportunities, we don't always think through what the job itself requires. And so be very careful to run for the jobs that you want to do, because this is hard work. 
it's good work, it's worthwhile work, but it's hard, and so you need to be committed to solving the problems that affect you and the problems that animate you. Um, but most of all, do not be afraid. Run. Running for office requires raising money. And often people of color, especially women of color, are afraid to raise money because we either don't have experience or we don't think we know anyone with money or we just, it feels weird to ask people for money. Here's what I say. I don't get to keep any of the money. So I don't feel bad about asking for it. I'm not asking anyone to invest in me. They're investing in my vision. They're investing in my ingenuity. They're investing in the work I plan to do. And I've become a very solid fundraiser for that reason because I don't see this as a personal ask. Everyone can contribute, whether it's a dollar, three dollars, ten dollars, a hundred dollars. Make certain that when you get ready to run for office that you are also ready to ask people to invest in your vision. So many of our people lose campaigns, not because we don't have the best ideas, but because we just hope people will hear about them and, and will spontaneously give. They're not going to do that. Uh, President Barack Obama is the only human in history who was able to achieve that, and even for him it didn't happen quite as fantastically as people like to believe. He, did, he spent a lot of time fundraising. We have to be willing to ask people to invest. Because if we aren't willing to ask them to invest, we can't then tell more people about what we need and what we intend to do. So get over the worries of fundraising and get to work. Afropunk Solution Sessions is a co-production between Afropunk and Stuff Media. Your hosts are Bridget Todd and Eves Jeffcoat. Executive producers are Julie Douglas, Jocelyn Cooper, and Quan Latif-Hill. Dylan Fagan is supervising producer and audio engineer. Many, many thanks to Casey Pegram and Annie Reese for their production and editorial oversight. And many thanks to our On the Ground Atlanta crew, Ben Bolin, Corey Oliver, and Noel Brown. The Underside of Power is performed by Algiers. Connect with us at afropunk.com and don't forget to vote on November 6th. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. 
To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.